see we're on a mission from God. host Amanda Qureshi also known as Q and today's guest is someone I've known for about five or six years. I met him through a interfaith leadership program that is housed at his or not his but at the organization that he leads uh, the Shalom Hartman Institute and he is or has become a good friend and somebody that I admire and respect very much and so I am definitely looking forward to this conversation with Yehuda Kurtzer. Hi, Yehuda. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for How's having me. Yeah, yeah. So um, long time no see, friend. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, wow. How's the you know. pandemic life treating you? Yeah, how's your pandemic? Uh, uh, it's okay. I, I outfitted myself a nice little office here in the basement where I've been. Oh. I know it's nice. I have plants. Like it, it looks pretty legit, actually. We're on Zoom. So yeah. I can see. yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephanie cleaned it up last week after a year of like being in my basement and speaking to literally thousands of people on Zoom over the course of the year. She was like, you can't do you can't do this. So um but there's socks some, everywhere. You know, it was more like there's like kind of exposed pipes in our basement and hmm. like there's a bathroom behind me. So that's like weird. So instead we kind of <laughs> structured it um to look a little bit more like a functional office, but uh, pandemic's okay. My my kids have been in school all year, uh, actual school since September. And oh. that's been the, that's been kind of the difference maker for our family, for everybody's mental health. I can't believe how many people in this country are not in, don't have kids in school. I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. That's yeah. Been, uh, yeah. Well, my kids have not been, um, but they're 18. So yeah. I barely see them. Like uh-huh. I just hold the threat of lifelong despair and failure over their heads if they don't do their schoolwork. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, okay. I assume I assume that they're also at a point where they probably want to get at get the hell out of Dodge as soon as this is over anyway. So uh-huh. that builds an incentive for them to Absolutely. actually complete school. Absolutely. They do really well. I I, I cannot complain about yeah. my kids. They are good kids. Um, okay, so we do icebreaker questions here on the podcast. Are you ready? I'm ready. Born ready. <laughs> All right. All right. So the first question is, what is the last thing you watched on TV? Oh, that's easy. We uh, were watching season three of Fargo. No. Oh. Which people don't really know this. I think it's probably the best TV ever made. I'm, really? I'm, a bold thing to say. Did you watch Fargo? Have you watched it? I haven't. It, I've seen it. You've seen the movie. No, no. Yeah, I've seen the movie and then I've seen it like on my, is it on Netflix or? On Hulu. On Hulu. Okay. I've seen it on one of my streaming services and thought, oh, that's interesting. So it's unbelievable. They took the premise of the movie and Mm -hmm. and they're on to the fourth or maybe the fifth season. And each season is basically like a stretched out version of like the move of the movie, you know, Coen Brothers movie, Mm -hmm. where it's just, it has an overall moral message of, there's a rabbinic term for this, which is like one sin causes another. It's like people start making mistakes and then you see people like fall apart through those decision makings. They're crime stories, but they're so in, it's such inventive, beautiful television. So I really? watched it, I watched it years ago and then we ran out, of, you know, we finished Netflix. So I was like, Stephanie, let's watch this. She's never watched it. I forgot it all. So it's still great. It's just incredible. So I, Wait, I watched that last night. Is it old? I'd never heard of it before. 
it's probably seven or eight years old the first season so there's a new season a new season came out this past year starring chris rock it's totally new cast each year um oh my god that's amazing okay all right i'm sold because i i and any kind of show with murder i'm in into it yes i don't know what it is but i love murder shows yes love the murder Well, it's not, I don't think it's that, because I watch a lot of like British crime too. I think I really just like problem solving and crime investigation and just like the mystery around it. Yeah, I'm also weirdly fast, like I have a weird fascination with dark souls. Like I like serial killer. I can't imagine why. I'm a nice person. I I don't think it's a, (laughs) Uh, but I, I like serial killer books. Just there's something so like wild to me about the brain science behind some of this and the secrecy. I don't know. Do you think, so I have a, I I actually do this too. And I think a lot about what makes people go really bad. And I tend to like, this doesn't need to be a huge philosophical discussion, but I, I don't think that people are just evil. I think they're broken. I think things happen with people or that they are, they have certain inherent characteristics that don't allow them to understand what what it means to be social right social Mm -hmm. creatures so they're they're psychopaths or sociopaths or all of these things that you know manifest in all these ugly ways and so and because of that i'm really opposed to strong punitive measures that don't at least try to understand the problem like, I feel like a lot of people see horrible people do horrible things and their first inclination is let's just smash it and destroy it and get it out of sight. And I'm more like, if this is a thing and it keeps happening in humanity, let's figure out exactly why, because, mm-hmm. or, or are we just going to keep like <laughs> playing whack-a-mole with, <laughs> with yeah. psychos the rest of our existence? Yeah, I agree. I Another another angle on this is if you've ever known somebody who's actually been on the wrong side of the criminal justice system, if you've yeah. ever known somebody personally, and I have, who, like anybody in the outside world, seeing this person being accused of what they would be doing, would come to the conclusions about this person's evil, regardless of whether they were uh, acquitted or convicted. It's just, oh my God, that's dark and bleak and wrong and it's evil. Right. Um, and if you know somebody on the other side of it, it's like, well, no, that's first of all, not really... The story is never quite how people think it is. Right. And criminal justice is rarely kind of a slam dunk. Oftentimes it is, but rarely it is. And people are really complicated. It's such a banal thing to say, but it's really complicated. Now, you know, part of the attraction to this kind of television is also you get to know characters mm-hmm. and you see mistakes and you see where, you know, in, in Fargo, there's always like a super evil character. Mm-hmm but they're oftentimes the funniest character in the show. So Billy Bob Thornton in season one is the really bad guy, but he's hysterical, like laugh out loud funny. So I don't know, there's something there around um, uh, around opening up a window in our our own self-awareness, without getting too deep about television, uh, opening up like a, a window in our own self-awareness of like, are we the moral people who we think we are? Right. Right. It's the, yeah. it's the banality of evil thing, right? Yeah. Are yeah. we, are we all just like, ready to slide right into good old banality of evil hey you know that risk going too biblical but one of the most amazing lines i think in the whole bible is when when god basically realizes i think it's genesis 9 basically realizes that human beings are not good 
they're not inherently they're not inherently good uh-huh. and the bible says god basically repents of the knowledge of believing that human beings are fundamentally good and says now i know human beings have a lot, a lot of bit evil baked into them and therefore i have to reorient how i think about engaging with these people and i love that because it's like great god you finally see us we're we're kind of a mess <laughs> now you know love us for who we are <laughs> <laughs> or the, that the more you know yeah exactly (laughs) amazing okay uh second question then is what is the last book that you read oh man reading has been hard for me in the pandemic actually um really yeah i know a bunch of people for whom this is the case i feel better about myself that i know those people but um i was having a hard time reading for a while um i'm in the middle of almost finished uh with a book called the underground railroad uh it's a novel it's a extraordinary historical fantasy novel about telling the story of a person's journey through the Underground Railroad, but just, but imagining that the Underground Railroad was an actual Underground Railroad. What? It's magnificent. Wow. It's, it's an astonishing book about race and about America and about, oh, it's amazing. Wow. Okay. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of us this year, I've been reading, when I'm reading, I'm trying to read about race, but but I think some of the best stuff is fiction. So this is, I, it. I mean, this is it. Yeah. I do too. I started, I like, uh, last month I read Octavia Butler. Do you know who she is? Mm-hmm. She, so she wrote these science fiction books um, where, you know, race and other factors, you know, gender, all of these things kind of play in. And uh, it was just gripping stuff. And this was written, I think the one that I read was written maybe 50s or 60s, maybe 70s, I don't know. But man, like I couldn't stop. It was so good. So yeah. I think that I think that that's right. I feel like when you read fiction around these topics, it actually is disarming and allows you to like really absorb the full impact of the issues that they're talking about, right? Yeah. Like really internalize and and feel it it's not an intellectual exercise it's an emotional yes exercise yeah yes the author by the way is colson whitehead and i read his other book before which is called nickel boys which is hmm. about like a kind of juvenile detention center in the 50s and all the yeah. racial divisions there i think i agree with you i actually have something of an allergy to some of the theoretical literature and some of the intellectual discussions about race yep. because there there's a i just find that there's a lot of dogma it's weirdly like a faith issue you have to believe a certain thing about the world yeah. and and I, but I, but the literature that right. helps you actually internalize back to what we we're talking about before how do i how do i understand the human experience and i don't know we're people who for whom i don't know i feel personally i'm like a person for whom stories helps me understand humans much more than like rigid ideas about who human beings are and how they work yep I, I, Speaking of, wouldn't you say that the vast majority of people who truly understand, say, like the Holocaust, have learned about it through storytelling as opposed to just, you know, rigorous academic research? I mean, maybe in your world, but like in my world, we learned about the Holocaust through Schindler's List or any of these books or movies that were stories, not just facts. Yeah. For better or worse. I mean, that's the, the legend of Will and Grace, right? Will and mm-hmm. Grace was the was one of the most powerful cultural instruments to change American attitudes around gay people. Yep. 
you have lovable characters on television and they were they were weird and flawed just like everybody else was and it was just who people are yep so and and by the way you said you know our work is around rigorous academic research but you've been to hartman mm -hmm. you also know that a lot of that rigorous academic research is about narratives that's true yep right? that's right and and to notice the ways that so-and-so may gravitate towards this piece of academic research based on their own personal narrative what's yep. what are the questions that interest them why are they looking for a solution in the literature you know? yeah yep right on okay and the last question is what did you have for breakfast uh not proud to say this but we had like a half a tub of old shakshuka sauce in the fridge uh -huh. and like half a tub of rice and lentils. So I just mixed it together and microwaved it. It was actually delicious, but- Why is that? Was, That's not bad. I would have thrown an egg on top. I didn't have time for that. I had to uh -huh. run to the podcast, you know. Um, <laughs> it was, it was. let's just say it was recently. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, actually tasted delicious, but it had the double effect of helping me clean out the fridge. Nice, for, yeah. for Passover, right? Well, yeah, really, for, right, right now for Shabbat, because I got to cook for Shabbat. Okay. But yes, um, Passover's coming. Yes. Passover looms. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, for those who are listening who don't know anything about you, you should know that Yehuda is this brilliant intellectual who is basically wasting his time because his true calling is food. And yes. it's true. <laughs> I, I anxiously await your restaurant review blog. Like you, you just quit, just quit and become a food blogger. I know I can't make, can't make a living on it, but, um, I do like food. I like eating it primarily. I like cook. I, don't know, I love cooking. <laughs> I love, I love cooking. I it's, um, it, that's been the craziest and best part of the pandemic is that I don't travel. I, as you know, I was traveling every other week for 10 years yes. um, for multiple nights a week away from home. And our babysitter like would make the kids dinner during the week. And sometimes I would come home and, you know, whip up something for, for Stephanie and I to eat uh, and then just cook for the weekend. And since the pandemic, I've put dinner on the table pretty much every night, except one night a week where we get takeout, thankfully. And it's been an incredible anchoring thing for our family yeah. and this like creative outlet for me of, okay, I'm going to work in the basement and then I have an hour and whatever's in the fridge is going to turn into dinner. Our kids are better behaved. They're eating better than they've ever eaten before. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's like chopped every day. You just go upstairs chopped every day. and like throw together like six different random Correct. things. Yeah. Correct. Excellent. And it's great. And Stephanie every night gives the same speech. It's hilarious. The kids make fun of her. They're like, it's like, I can't believe you do this every night for our family. And it's a good ritual of like, you get a little <laughs> bit of acknowledgement of the, of the work, uh, of the work well done. So I do love, I do love that, um, that whole part of life. I also, as you know, Amanda, like I, my work is all talking and writing uh -huh. and, and thinking a lot yeah. of thinking too much thinking. <laughs> so I have one activity that I do like one hobby, which is not in my head. And it's with my, it's like with my hands and it's, yes. it's a little bit of physical labor. It's not really that taxing, but it's a little bit of physical labor. And it's instead of ideas, it's aromas and it's mm -hmm. flavors and it's colorful and the best part is it, pro <laughs> it, it produces something that has immediate gratification, unlike yes. anything else I do in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, that is actually so important. It is. Like people do not realize how important that is. And and actually my husband is the same way. He, he fancies himself a cook. I don't think he's on your level, but 
he does like to go in and make a big old mess in the kitchen and that's yep. you know that's what he does he works in software all day and then he's just like fuck this i'm going into the kitchen yeah. and i think that's good i approve <laughs> let me ask you a super important question which is if you don't have to do the chopped cooking method if you were given the you know a, an unlimited budget to make your perfect dish or perfect meal like what is the thing like say somebody super important was coming to your say beyonce was coming to your house oh my right? god i'm nervous already <laughs> what would you prepare for dinner oh man first of all i would take weeks of thinking about it <laughs> weeks. classic i know it's a problem actually so i'll tell you i i did that um for my 40th birthday you know i i'm kind of an introvert I'm a social media extrovert, but I'm an actual introvert. Yeah. So for Stephanie's 40th birthday, she wanted a big party. So I threw her a giant party with like 200 people, a karaoke machine and a dance party. It was Damn. great. Yeah. And like spiced popcorn. That was it. Like popcorn and beer and dance party. For my birthday, I what I said was my 40th birthday, I want an unlimited budget and I want to make a dinner party for 10 friends. Stephanie was like, that's weird, but... You do you. It's your party. So that's what I did. So I I took like a day and a half off of work, two days off of work. I spent a couple of weeks building a menu, and then cooked a seven course dinner for my closest friends. Holy shit! This this is amazing. Okay, so what did you make? It was the best. And you know something? The gift that I got from all of this was some incredible serendipity that everything worked, everything came out as I hoped it would, uh -huh. even though I was trying to do all sorts of things that I had never done before with all sorts of fancy ingredients. So I did, first I did like a course of past appetizers with, what did I have? I had like, like a duck breast crostini and no, it's delicious. Duck is amazing. It's the best, it's the I best bird. It's the you. best bird for eating. <laughs> <laughs> Not for friendship, but for eating. Um, I did like a mini chicken and waffle fried chicken and waffle and a, and these were all just the past appetizers and an everything bagel deviled egg, which is, I think my best invention I've ever made. Yeah. Um, and then I had a soup course, like it was Jerusalem artichoke. I had a fish course, maybe it was a Chilean. It was like white and black was the fish course. It was a piece of poached Chilean sea bass atop black lentils with like <gasps> this wine sauce. It was amazing. I had a meat course where I did meat and potatoes two ways. Mm -hmm. One was like a slow cooked braised short rib, which was basically like perfection on a plate combined with like a, I think a raw beef. I don't remember. It was, I, I just want to tell you, it was, it was unbelievable. I was okay. like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, something's going to flop. You know, one of these things is not going to work and everybody's there having a good time. So nobody's going to be like big, oh man, the steak was terrible. It just was really good. It was all Did really you do good. wine pairings for everything? Oh yeah. We had wine throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, what did you have for dessert? I need to know that. So remember we're kosher. So it's mm. kind of a obstacle when you have a meat meal, uh -huh. Oh you know, to yes, make yes, like yes. a perfect dessert, it can't be dairy. I made, so I used coconut milk and I made a, what did I make? I think I made a coconut flan. Nice. Which was very good. Yeah. Weirdly yeah. good. Yeah. I made something chocolatey also and multiple wow. things. Who did it was you invite so to this good. dinner? Besides Beyonce? Uh, yeah, but just five couples. Hmm. Two drove in from out of town, from Boston. Did they New know York. what they were in for? Like, or was this just like, holy shit, we just won the dinner lottery? They, there was a little bit of that. And then they, and the best part with it for me was that they all teamed up and bought me a Vitamix. So everybody won. <gasps> Yay. I have one too. Isn't it great? <laughs> That's the best. Awesome. 
Okay, well, this is fantastic. I, I am so glad I asked that question. Yeah. I'm also a little disappointed in you that you didn't feel the need to document any of that. I wrote down the menu. I have it somewhere. Hmm. I think we took some pictures. I felt a little, I didn't post about it because I felt bad about like, I invited five friends, five couples and not oh, my 3000 Facebook friends, <laughs> Facebook quote unquote friends. Um, so I didn't want to deal with that. I also, yeah, it, I, yeah, I feel even sense. funny you know, sharing this out loud, but, um, but yeah, but uh, it, it would just, it was actually a gift for me. This is something I love doing. Yeah. is 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 preparing food and feeding it to people who I like. Wow, excellent. Yeah. Um, I look forward to coming to your house for dinner. Yes, yeah, soup. Sometime We're going to have future. soup. <laughs> you know how I feel about soup. I do know how you feel about soup. I'm keeping records. Soup is life. <laughs> Did you see, I got a new um, new soup pot for my birthday. Oh yeah, I saw it. So like, like a Le Creuset, right? Yes, and it's beautiful, like sunny yellow color. I'm very excited. I haven't christened it yet. I have it sitting on my counter outside of the box on top of the box and I just look at it and yeah. I'm sort of working myself up to making of my first. Oh, it's the best. You know, um, just one great Le Creuset story. Uh-huh. My mother-in-law, you know, was from Paris in the 60s. That's where mm -hmm. she kind of grew up. She has like these gorgeous Le Creuset pots from Paris in the 60s, wow. like well-worn, beautiful, old. And she has this weird ritual that she does with, with Stephanie and her sister, where like every couple of years, she like takes out all the jewelry mm -hmm. and is like, when I die, you get this and you get this. <laughs> and they all pretend like they don't care, but they care. Yeah. Um, and one time this was happening. <laughs> one time this was happening and I have a very great relationship with my mother-in-law. Um, and I just said to her mom, I don't really care about the jewelry, but I get the pots. <laughs> and then a year later, she gave me one of them. She was like, why do I wait? Why would I wait until I'm dead? You're going to use it more than me. So I have this one of those beautiful pots. What did you get? She gave me one of the orange Le Creuset pots to yeah. cook with. And it's just glorious. It's like an oval Dutch oven. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it's beautiful. Okay. All right. So you could, if you were to, I'm sure you have a good answer to this, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> what do you say when people ask what it is that you do? What do you do? Besides, uh, What do I do? Like when I fill out forms, I have to, I like write nonprofit executive because I can't think of anything else. It's yeah. not really it. I, you know, I, I don't like using this term because I feel like it's a term that other people should use for you that you don't get to use for yourself, but I'm trying to be a public intellectual. Mm -hmm. I think that's the nature of the work. I think our institution, the Hartman Institute, is trying to be an, you know, an engine of thought leadership for the Jewish people, which mm -hmm. is another way of saying like a public intellectual institution that, that really sees as its work, helping serious people think about the big challenges that they're facing mm -hmm. and building relationships with each other around those challenges. The tricky part of our work, as you know, is that we care a lot about these challenges. We don't see ourselves as a policy or an advocacy institution. And we live in a climate where, where impact is oftentimes thought of exclusively through policy type solutions right. to major social problems. Right. So we try to hold ourselves back from that and get just be in that place of what would it look like if we could think differently about this, mm -hmm. if we could understand it deeper. And, or another way to put it is we oftentimes describe our work in, in the Jewish world as we're asking why questions and not how questions. Okay, I like that. So, you know, it's a tricky organization in that respect because a lot of people want you, if you've helped them think about why, 
they want you to help them think about how. Right. And we hold ourselves back a little bit. So I feel that that's, that that's my work and that there's a couple of big questions about Jewish life that I really, really care about that I'm always kind of thinking about and, and always playing with what else do I need to know and learn to understand this? Who should I be talking to? Who can we reach? How can we reach them? I think that's what I do. What is the, what are your, what are your two big or two or three big questions about Jewish life that you personally are, I know, you know, there's a huge range of thought and scholarship and public discourse around Judaism, both as a religion mm-hmm. and as a, as a culture um, here and around the world. So what is it that you are personally most interested in? Yeah, I think the two big ones are, I care a lot about pluralism, almost like a parody of myself. I really am constantly kind of teasing out the questions of what does it mean to really believe that there are multiple truths in the world and that your that your world is expanded by being in community together with other people? What does that really mean? How does it stretch us beyond the comfort of like building communities that are rooted in sameness? Um, right. What do we gain out of that? I think for the in- internal conversation for Jews, this is critical. There's not that many of us. And by definition, we are a trans-ethnic, trans-racial, trans-political, trans-denominational, trans-geographic community. And therefore you need a technology like pluralism to be able to hold together some sort of group identity because mm-hmm. you can't shortcut through any of those things. Yep. So we need it. So there's an essential need for it, but I'm also just, I've always been curious about it philosophically and theologically. Many of the most formative experiences in my own life Jewishly were precisely by being environments of people who came with totally different worldviews. So I think about that all the time. I'm playing with it all the time. And the other, I guess, is this whole diaspora question. Jews are, are a fascinating people because we, we think of ourselves as having come from a particular place and trying to return to a particular place, but the dominant characteristic of our history has been wanderlust, you know? So, and now, you know, since 1948, the creation of the state of Israel, it's like putting this whole question to the test. Who are, what does it mean to be a people who are connected to a land, but who choose not to live there? Mm-hmm. Um, and for American Jews, in what ways are we diaspora Jews? In what ways are we at home in America? And these two things connect because I, I care about holding together the Jewish people, even though our differences and the geographic one are, are really big and really getting in the way of that. So those yeah. are probably the two I play with the most. Yeah, I, I feel like, so my association with you has really enriched me in so many ways, right? And the exposure that I've had to a lot of the conversations that happen within Jewish circles are so fascinating to me because it feels almost like a microcosm of a bigger question that humanity is grappling with, especially in modern times, about belonging and about pluralism and about sitting with differences and what does it mean for us to all be together like where are the lines between you know what we'll tolerate as far as differences Mm -hmm. and still allow you to call yourself or identify as the same the same way I do right Mm -hmm. and I feel like there is and I think you're probably the best person to ask this to um, I feel like there's an increasing amount of pressure to draw lines between differences and and otherwise 
right? Mm -hmm. And um, this is deeply concerning to me because like you, I value pluralism. It's, it's something I truly, even things that I don't agree with, I find value there because they help me form my own views, right? They help mm -hmm. keep me sharp and keep me challenged. So um, as long as people aren't being killed, right? <laughs> as long as we're not trying to eradicate people, I, I want to hear why and I want to hear how people are coming to their conclusions and I want to be challenged by them. So I guess the question is, is this, some, is this a new thing? Is this the result of modernity, of the world getting very, very small and all of us getting very, very close very quickly? Or is this just how it's always been? So first, before I answer that, I'll just say, I think the challenge for people like you and me who do care about this is that we seem to derive inherent value from encounters across difference. We right. think it's really important and we know how to optimize them, right? Or as my colleague Tamara Twill put it to me recently, we, we also derive pleasure from it. Mm -hmm. We gotta own that because right. if you want other people to do it, it's like anything, if you really enjoy something and then you're frustrated that other people aren't doing that same activity, but they don't derive pleasure from it. They don't like it. It's hard for them. You know, it's like you lose empathy for them, even though you're misunderstanding like that it's easy for you and hard for them. So like I think assholes who really love to work out and are constantly, yes. like, yeah, let's go work out. And you're like, dude, right. I don't want to go work out with you. No, it's worse though. When they say they really love working out and then they tell, they preach to you of why working out is, is a good thing to do as opposed to acknowledging I think you should work out because I like it. Uh -huh. It's enjoyable to me. And you might also find it enjoyable. Right. I think pluralism is the same thing. What uh -huh. happens when there's a lot of people for whom it's not pleasurable? Yeah. Actually, by definition, encountering a cross difference for some people is really uncomfortable and it's really unpleasant. And we can't assume that just because we have a we derive pleasure from it, that it's therefore morally good and therefore other people should engage in that morally good activity. Mm. That's a big part of it. I don't think anything what we're encountering right now is new but we actually have access to more difference today than I think people have in the past. That's, I think that's right. I think that's, that's right. That's different, right? Oh yeah. Like, like just by virtue of social media, right? Like you're, I think, I mean, this is something I'm constantly preaching to people is you can't underestimate the constant barrage against your, you know, deeply held beliefs just by being, being online and consuming things mm -hmm. at such a rate, like constantly you're running into not just what people say, but how they say it that offends your sensibilities or your sense mm -hmm. of rightness. And I always quote a study that was done by a group of neuroscientists um, at USC, um, led by our friend, Sam Harris, <laughs> <laughs> who I, I think that this is still a, a really val a valuable um, conclusion is so he had people in in a you know in an MRI and the the experiment was to read things to people that contradicted their deeply held beliefs mm -hmm. right to see how their brains would react and what they found is that people the, the same parts centers of your brain that react when you're actually being physically attacked will light up when you encounter ideas that are different or that challenge you or that that um, contradict your beliefs. And so we, we are having this constant psychosomatic response at, at a huge scale where we feel threatened almost all the mm -hmm. time right now. And it's so dangerous to try to navigate that when it comes to really big and important 
issues that are affecting people's lives. Like we're, we're now doing our, our, the, a huge amount of our political discourse and political activism online in that yeah. environment. And yeah. the implications are huge for that. Yeah, it's a very deep insight. You know, I remember a few years ago, I think it was the first cohort of MLI, one of the participants was in Jerusalem and I said something in one of the classes, it was about Jewish peoplehood or something else. And the person asked me a very probing question, you know, challenging what I had said, basically saying, are you saying the following? And I said, yes, I'm saying the following. And the person reacted with a statement I, I've thought about so many times since, because I was so moved by it, where all he said was, that's a new idea for me. Hmm. And then sat back in his chair. And I, I imagine, right? Imagine a culture where somebody presents something you haven't thought about before, maybe challenges your beliefs. And the reaction is, I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to assimilate that information. It's going to, I'm going to now also balance. I want to keep talking to you with the awareness that you've sent something that really, really, that's really threatening in some way, Mm. but I'm just going to pause and breathe. And you can only do that in interpersonal encounters. Because you're in the room, where are you going to go? Run away? With Twitter, you'll just leave the app, like you'll just shut it and do something else. Or you're dash out a response that's probably Uh ill-advised. Uh-huh. retweet it, do something else there, that it, there's no, there's no incentive. There's no motivation to stop and think that's like a bad use of the technology. Right. Um, yes. yes. So I, I mean, the, the whole yeah. technology, the whole point of digital media or social media as it is, is to actually override your thought process, right? Mm. It's optimized for marketing, which marketing, its whole purpose is to override your thought process too, and get you yeah. to react by spending money, right? Yeah. Like that's mm, what chips. it's for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, I find it incredibly distressing that we continue to fall back on um, these really unhealthy patterns of engagement and hold them up as best use of, of media or you, the democratization it, of media. But you, you are taking an approach by doing the kind of digital engagement and training that you're doing of trying to repair the system from the inside. So it seems like you would you believe that it's possible to create encounters or real leadership through these technologies that are counter to the incentivized algorithms themselves. What makes you, what, why do you believe, and I think it's holy work that you're doing, but why do you think that that's, that it, is it, is it one of these things where it's actually fixable on the inside uh, of the technology itself? I'm going to be really honest with you and tell you that I have no idea. I yeah. hope, but if I don't do this, I mean, I've had this very straightforward conversation with people in my alumni community from the program. This may be a complete fool's errand. I feel most of the time, I feel like I'm a complete failure. There's no doubt in my mind that this is absolutely counterculture or countercultural to what the majority of people are doing and whether or not they, they may complain about it, but they actually don't have any interest or incentive to change that behavior. Mm-hmm. And I could be this could just be a waste, a colossal waste of time. But what else can I do? Mm. Like I see damage being done, legitimate damage to our society, to our communities that is being done. And if I don't do this, then I don't have anything else to do. I'm just going to sit there and watch it, watch people get hurt and watch, Mm. you know, things, bad things happen. So 
that's it. I mean, it's one of those things, right? I, I'm incredibly discouraged most of the time in my work, but I am also a huge fool. So I keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. I mean, you, yeah. but, but, but the other, on the other hand, I do have examples of things that do work. You're, I like, I use you as a case study all the time. I mean, I'm always pointing people to your work online, which is to me an ideal use of social media or digital space, which is, I, I don't know if it's because I, I, I've thought a lot about how you do what you do. I think part of it is that you have an enormous amount of training, right? As an intellectual, as an academic, as somebody whose job it is to think things through, right? So you don't you already have that kind of leg up. It's almost like as if you were a Zen master, right? Like if you're a person who practices Zen, you're automatically going to have this leg up because you have ingrained these practices of stopping and thinking things through before you respond, right? Or at least having some kinds of checks and balances within yourself. You are not a typical internet user. So... (laughs) It could be that um, I'm basing my entire vision yeah. of how the wind could be on yeah. an anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, you're not the only one. And I do see people who are using yeah. spaces in that way. And I admire it very much. Yeah. Uh, I thought about writing, writing this up at one point. Mm-hmm. I had a whole subtitle for the book, How Social Media Can Repair the World That It Destroyed. Um, But because I think when it works, when you can actually create online community, I think that's the effort that you're trying to build out um, training and tools for. People do weirdly feel like part of a community. And in some ways, social media offers an opportunity for people to feel part of communities that are unavailable to them. The pandemic is kind of a great example to this effect of acts, means of feeling connected to people. It, It makes people weirdly, it generates certain intimacies that are actually quite dangerous. So mm-hmm. I have a whole bunch of people who think they know me, who I've never met in person, who talk to me like they know me. And once in a while, I have to be like, dude, you don't know me. You don't know the tone here. You don't get the joke. You don't, you know, um, there's like intertextual references, but you said this thing on Facebook three months ago. And I'm like, hey, the whole thing is a rough draft. Yeah. This the whole premise, the whole point of this exercise is a rough draft. We all have to know that those are the rules of the game. That the difference there's a difference between I'm publishing this as an article because I've really thought about it versus I have a kernel of a thought. Let's play with it and talk about it. So I do think that there's possibility of generating that community, but like all forms of community, it, it winds up even when it's good, it brings in all of the ways in which also people act out in community or yeah. people use their proximity and their intimacy to to do, you know, to do annoying things. So yeah. yeah, I feel like people feel like there's a magic, uh, something that you can just do that's going to make digital spaces good or useful. It's not that. And it's exactly, in some ways, it's exactly the same as your offline spaces, right? When you convene mm-hmm. a space, you know, you're an educator as, as a huge part of who you are. When you convene a space where you're trying to make it a beneficial learning environment or a place where people can engage and come away and have some kind of benefit from it, there are rules that you put in place, right? And those are, it's not like these are the rules. It's like, this is the shared understanding of how we engage in this space. And even with all of that done perfectly, you're still going to have shit that goes down that isn't yeah. optimal. 
because you're dealing with the ultimate variables, right, of, of human beings. Other so, people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but that's all to say that that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong when shit goes down. Mm-hmm. that's just par for the course. And then I feel like there's this weird idea that we're going to have, we're going to create this like online utopia where it'll be perfect and all, and all of that. So that's why I work with individual leaders because the ideal for me isn't to make the internet better. The ideal is for us to be able to traverse and use and, and engage online, right? Spaces in ways that are good for us to be adaptable, for us to be able to move through those spaces and actually be able to have the right responses, to make the right choices when they need to be made. I mean, it's a, it's, it's actually the same thing as life. Yeah, <laughs> like, I like that. Yeah. I like that. I think it's more noble to basically say, okay, social media is going to replicate the good and the bad aspects. Maybe it'll magnify yeah. the good and bad aspects of real life. How do we basically try to bring the same ethics and norms into that space? This, But to do that work simultaneous with trying to do that in real life also mm-hmm. um, so that you don't wind up with the distortions that oftentimes get created where we know this all the time so and so is like a real jerk on twitter and then you meet them in real life and they're actually a decent person yeah you're like well, how do you actually bridge those to be a little bit closer so at least you know someone's a jerk on twitter maybe they're also a jerk in real life that would be helpful um, <laughs> <laughs> in social yeah. relations but we sh- that's i mean I, and that's why i um, I really value that most of my work is not on social media. Mm-hmm. Most of my work is in person with other people and to try to, yeah, to try to bridge the bridge the gap between those. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for the work that you do online. I feel like it's a really great example. And um, whether you're an anomaly or not, I feel like that gives us something, one really, you know, one of a handful of really good examples of what we can be shooting for, what it can look like. I do believe that leadership and positive change and cultural transformation happens through modeling, mm-hmm. right? Like leaders show what it looks like. They, you can't tell people, um, or you can, but it's not going to work, right? You, you have to show this is what it looks like when it's done right. And so I'm grateful for that. Very grateful for that. Um Let's talk a little bit about your about your community. And I'm, you know, a lot has been said, a lot has been written in the last four or five years around increased anti-Semitism in America and around the world. And, you know, I, by virtue of having done interfaith work with Muslims and Jews for so many years, am privy to a lot of conversations uh, in the Jewish community where there is a just incredibly heightened anxiety um, it's lessened a little bit now, but actually I'm kind of concerned because I don't think it should be lessened now. <laughs> yeah. I actually think whatever there was like six months ago is still there. Oh yeah. Right? So this is what is concerning to me. What, you know, you are probably the most knowledgeable person I personally know about Jewish history and peoplehood. Where do you place the American Jewish population in a threat model? right now like where what does it look like you know compared to orange (laughs) good answer um why orange no the 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 real answer is there isn't that and that's that's i think what is creating so much static uncertainty and actually partisanship within the jewish community Mm -hmm. is the whole question is is i believe that there's no template there's no like one of the things that, that Jews like to do is to say, huh, the weather just turned, 
what do I remember this like? What, you know, so like, is this the Reichstag fire? You hear that a lot of like, uh, you know, it was the storming of the Capitol, was that the Reichstag fire? Because if I can, if I can connect it to this historical event at this moment, I can then tell you how the rest of it is going to unfold. Right. And, and what I might be able to do, the fantasy, the imaginative fantasy that's connected to that is the playbook that we didn't do back in 1933, we actually could do today. And here's right. how we would mobilize to prevent what's happening next. The problem is that all of the analogies are really shoddy. Um, because unlike any other time in Jewish history, the American Jewish community has a kind of influence, affluence, power, privilege, choose any of those words that you want to describe its own experience. American Jews are assimilated, which is sometimes thought of as a bad word, but it's actually a really good word, into the American polity in ways that are different than ever before. Maybe echoes of some times in Jewish history where it was similar, but it's really quite different. And the biggest elephant is... None of those stories, in none of those stories was there also a Jewish sovereign state that actually was objectively powerful. So the condition of the Jewish people is just so fundamentally different in this moment than ever before. So it mitigates against those analogies. But what oftentimes happens in the Jewish community is in response to the growing anti-Semitism, and it is growing around the world, um, in response to that, you can see arguments that are rooted in that very question. If I argue it's 1933 and you argue it's 1967 in the spring before the Six Day War, what is that? That means that we're implying different stories and therefore implying kind of a telos of totally different politics. And I think that's, I think that's part of the problem is maybe we're on totally uncertain ground and that those templates, those historical templates don't help us completely. Huh. Nobody likes that answer. No. <laughs> Listen, right. I mean, you know, Pittsburgh was a was an extraordinary example. It's the worst anti-Semitic incident probably on American soil in American history. Yeah. But I can't point to another pogrom, right? Another action against Jews that led with that kind of violence that was then accompanied by the newspaper of that city running in the in the original Hebrew Aramaic phrase, the words of the Kaddish, the Jewish morning prayer, mm. to say Pittsburgh mourns its Jews because in almost all the stories of the, in, in Jewish history, the violence against Jews was like a way, the societies had to kind of give off steam. Mm -hmm. Nobody was mad about it. Some people, you know, you, the, the, the people in power were able to control it. So yeah. you allow it to happen once in a while and then you tamp it back up again. And then sometimes the power structures were responsible for it. But here, anti-Jewishness is seen as anti-Americanness. Mm -hmm. To the majority of Americans, and that's different. And and this is a place where I think inter intergroup work is so critical because I think it, I think the tide has turned in a positive way around anti-Muslim rhetoric in this country. Mm -hmm. But if you go back twenty years ago, I don't mean it's we're, I don't mean we're in good shape. But I, if you go back twenty years ago, the post nine eleven, my understanding as I saw it was being anti-Muslim was a way of expressing your Americanness for mm -hmm. a growing number of people. And now I think it's moving back. But I still think there's a difference in quantity. More Americans think anti-Jewish behavior is anti-American than think anti-Muslim behavior is anti-American. And right. that's where I think we could build a bridge. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I, that was one of the primary drivers that got me involved in doing Muslim and Jewish interfaith work is, is that very thing, is the, the idea that the Jewish community, uh, from what I saw right after 9-11, they, they were 
crushing it. Like in, in our community, we were just like, we are, you know, it was this moment of taking inventory and realizing how screwed we are. Mm. Like we don't have any kind of real infrastructure. We have no political power. We could get kicked around and nobody will think twice. And in fact, we, it could be posited as, as, as an American thing to do. And I looked over at the Jewish community who were about the same size, you know, two, 3% of the population um, who were, you know, you say one thing wrong, the ADL is going to come down on you. Like you are, you do not fuck around right? <laughs> With ADL. And, and I'm like, how do you get to that point as a minority community? Yeah. How do you get to the point where, yeah, there might be people that hate you forever and ever, whatever, but you, st- you have some way of combating that. And those people are, they, they understand even when they do it, that they are, that that is not acceptable behavior, yeah. right? That it is absolutely counter to the ideals of the, the, country and the culture that they're in. Right. I mean, I don't want to take us too far, of course, but one of the ways you do it is not because you're particularly good at anything, but it's through whiteness. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that's been, yes. that has been an asset to the majority of American Jews was the ability to travel through whiteness. Now, and that means that like, if you can demonstrate that anti-Jewishness is, is not how white people are supposed to behave to other white people, <laughs> then you can actually make that kind of progress. And I think yeah. that's that's a place where there's a bit, a bit of difference. That yeah. um, doesn't, obviously, as we know, and again, this is a total tangent, many Jews do not, quote unquote, identify as white people, yeah. um, whether or not they actually are empirically white people. Um, so it's not, it's not a shortcut to actually building relationships with the Jewish community to get to argue to the Jewish people, actually, you're just white people with a different religion. Mm-hmm. So it's not a great strategy, but it may be, it has to be part of a historical explanation for how the ADL becomes what the ADL is. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've actually, I find the conversation around race um, within the Jewish community super fascinating and the tensions that are there they play out you know especially because race is so important to political messaging on the political left and to challenge even progressive jews position as a minority whether whether they present as white or not i think i think there's some there's some tension there. Like it, these are not neat and tidy lines. It's not like you say um, you acknowledge, you know, you're a white person and that you have all this privilege and blah, 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 or you're a neo-Nazi. I mean, there's this, all this ugly gray area where conversations are happening and it has a lot to do with Jewish self-perception and, and also the lack of true understanding that the greater American public and the greater progressive movement has about Judaism and what it means to be Jewish, I think. Look, then, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, I, I think the way in which we're going to be able to make progress on this and actually achieve repair and strengthen intergroup and interfaith bonds, I, it's going to be through narrative, even though that's actually right now, it's a lot of it is through policy declarations, empirical announcements, right. uh, uh, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of jargon. Ultimately, this is going to be through narrative. And some of that is going to be 
personal narrative? How do people tell their stories to each other? Why do I see myself through the prism of this category and not that category? And some of it's through, through what we call like canonical or collective stories. What are the stories that our community wants to tell about ourselves? And you generate those stories by telling them. There's no short, there's no shortcut to that. It's not that like there's people out there deciding this is the story of this community. But right. you start telling stories of a community. I don't see a way, I see, I, I'll, let me put it positively. The way I think we can bring about repair is, through, through, is, is actually through more storytelling. So what do you tell people who feel like that is just a hippy-dippy waste of normalization and, you know, just... <laughs> Like, I, I, I mean, because I was I've been in the interfaith world for a long time. And we do we have a very bad reputation of just being these sort of let's get together and eat some hummus and talk about what we have in common. And like, we're, you know, we're all trying to see a better world. And it, it, I mean, it can get a little nauseating. Yeah. And the reality is that and, and this is one reason why I really love to talk to you. The most interesting parts of our humanity are where the differences lie. And so how do we flip the script a little bit and be like, yes, we need these, we need this mode of communication, right? We are storytellers and that's how we evolved as a species is to have these kinds of narrative conversations. And that's how we get past the intellectual blocks, but those are being done, not with the purpose of diluting our identities, but with truly creating an understanding across identities. You know, um, I think the only, res I, I don't know, I don't know whether it's actually worth responding to the accusation that it's not serious and it's not real. I think part of the answer is you just keep doing it. The reason why, the reason why the 1619 project is so threatening to so many Americans is because it's introducing another narrative framework to think about something that they really hold dear and that's America. Mm -hmm. And precisely because what it's threatening is a different narrative, it's a different story. In other words, the critics of the project understand more than anybody that their story is at the core of who they are. And that's the response to it. Um, you're not gonna win by telling people your story is wrong. You're not. What you can do is try to win in the public eye so that you can win for history. Mm -hmm change the story of history so that 100 years from now, people have a different understanding of the words 1619 and 1776. You can win for history. And you can try to invite people to understand a different historical narrative. But one of the things that I've always seen with interpersonal things, people are more receptive to hear someone else's story once they have been allowed, once they, have, once they are guaranteed the sense that their story has also been heard. Yes, agreed. Once you make that possible, people wind up being wildly open. I've seen this people across vast political differences. Oh, you're not telling me that I have to barter what I believe to be true in order to exchange for something else. You're not, you're not telling me to set it to the side. The worst type of interfaith work is set your stuff at the door yeah. and let's encounter as though we're on flat ground. Right. The best kind is you be who you are. You believe what you wanna believe. I actually wanna hear it. Yeah. And now I'm gonna tell you what I believe. And the fact, and then we get to that ideal dream place of you've you've said a new idea to me, and at some point we'll figure out how to assimilate those ideas. Uh, that's what humans do all the time. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody who's really not really scared of the consequences of believing the con believing what the sixteen nineteen project suggests. Maybe what they're scared of is is economic loss. 
Because if I go all the way down 1619 project, am I going to have to give up what I have to somebody else? Right. But maybe it doesn't have to be that. Maybe it's, you just have to be able to bring into your consciousness that for a lot of Americans, the story doesn't start in 1776. And that maybe some partial reckoning with the story of another can alter your moral imagination. And later we'll negotiate about reparations. Yeah. Those, those things don't have to always be connected. And I'm not even sure it serves them to be so obviously connected. The, the political consequences of narrative and narrative itself. Yeah. And as someone who has changed my mind drastically about things, very big things in my lifetime, I can tell you that this is a process and it's a very long process. So mm -hmm. it's, you're not going to have a summit where you bring people together, have this exchange of ideas, and then things are transformed. You, as the, the internal work that's required for you to truly understand somebody else means that yes, you take in their story. Yes, you hear their narrative and in some ways even internalize it, but then you have to go and you have to resolve that within yourself. And it is a battle sometimes intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. And so this is not something that I feel like we expect these quick results. And in some ways, maybe that's why we do so much focus on policy and stuff like that, because that those are the, the, the things that make us feel like we're making progress. But those things can be easily undone. And what yeah. really needs to happen is this internal work in all of us as we encounter these differences. And that's just not easy. And it's not going to be, as you know, it's yeah. not going to create this immediate sense of satisfaction. And like, I did it. So we did it. Listen, rabbinic Judaism is very skeptical of messianism for exactly this reason. Because mm. if you believe... First of all, if you believe that you're going to achieve some sort of political transformation in your own lifetime, first of all, you're probably going to do a lot of violence to people along the way to get there. Yep. And second is the things that you believe can be transformed in your lifetime might suggest that you're setting your sights too low, mm. that you'll see fruits of your labor quite quickly, and then you didn't dream big enough. So on one hand, you set up a messianic vision for the world because you need a, you need a North Star of what you're working towards. And then you're going to probably be disappointed about getting there. Yeah. Um, but that's where you're, that's what you spend your life doing. And I, I know more, you know, I, I'm in the education business, which means you're going to work for generations. And hopefully those who come after you will have benefited from your work, but you're probably not going to know. Yeah. That's a bummer. No, that's, it's that's good. why we it's, make dinner, right? That's, that's why, why we that's, make dinner. Every that's day. right. That's right. And that's why, <laughs> and it keeps you any, and that's why you should, anybody in this work should be humble and people who aren't humble about their outcomes it's probably not that good right wow well you have been incredibly generous with your time Yehuda and I could you know I could obviously talk to you for for a Likewise. long time yeah I mean, I, we should I, do this again yeah I really value you as a conversation partner and um, look forward to sharing this conversation with others and am so grateful for your friendship and the work that you do great to see you And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.